Thanks very much, Alice, and good morning, everyone. What a wonderful passage, isn't it, that we're looking at today? We're only going to be able to scratch the surface of it in the next half hour, but I hope as we do that, we'll be thrilled by what Jesus has to say to us, but also very deeply challenged by it. Uh, and the two really go together. There's much in this passage that we should rejoice in. There is also a lot that should help us to examine ourselves and our relationship with Jesus. Let me begin with a very basic question. What is a Christian? Or to put it another way, what difference is there between a Christian and someone who's not a Christian? Now, Peter's given us one answer to that already. A Christian is someone who follows Jesus. It's not directly on my list. It is certainly true. But if we're thinking about what is a Christian, then very simply, a Christian believes in Jesus. We've been going for some time now, with a little gap just the last few weeks, we've been going for some time through John's Gospel. And we've come back quite often to a verse right at the end of chapter 20 of the Gospel, where John gives the purpose for writing. And he says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, if you want to have life, if you want to have a relationship with God, you need to believe in Jesus. And if we read through the rest of the New Testament, that's what others say. Paul, when he was in a Philippian jail, uh, and the jailer in desperation asked him, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So fundamentally, a Christian believes in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world and lived among us, who died on the cross at Calvary to take the punishment for sin, who rose again, who is now with God, and who is coming back. And we believe that Jesus is the only way to God. If we want to have forgiveness for all the wrong we've done, if we want to have a relationship with the God of heaven, the only way is through Jesus. A Christian believes in Jesus. Let me suggest something else. A Christian behaves like Jesus. I think I need to give two caveats to that. The first of these is, none of us in this world will ever be exactly like Jesus. We all remain sinners, those who go our own way, who disobey God's way, and that will be the case, to some extent at least, for as long as we live. And so we know that we can't by ourselves win God's favour. We need Jesus, we need to believe in Jesus as the only way to God. The second caveat is it's not just Christians necessarily live all upright moral lives. There are people of other religions and of no religion who try to live well and to do good to others. But if we are a Christian, then we want to be like Jesus. We want to live the way that he lived. We want to live good moral lives. We want to be self-controlled. We want to have a real concern for others. We want to spread the good news about Jesus to others. All things that Jesus did that we should do as well. 
The last few weeks, as I'll mention, we've been going through the book of Titus, a, a great letter of Paul, and that is very much a focus of Titus, how we should live as Christians. For example, in chapter 2, Paul says, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Because of God's grace to us, because of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus, we should want to live like Jesus and to follow his example. A Christian behaves like Jesus. But I think there's something else, and this is where we're going to come to John chapter 15. I would suggest that a Christian belongs with Jesus. Now, I've not said belongs to Jesus, although that is true. A Christian belongs with Jesus. You see, being a Christian is not just a matter of believing the right things or of having good doctrine. It's not just a matter of doing good things, of having good ethics. Fundamentally, it's about a relationship that we have with the Lord Jesus. We belong with Jesus. And the passage we're looking at in John 15, the, the, the Lord gives us two lovely pictures of what that means. He says that if we are Christians, if we belong with him, then we are branches in a vine where he is the vine. And then he says later on, if we obey him, then we are his friends. Now, the, the picture of the vine in some ways is quite mystical, supernatural, and maybe quite difficult to grasp, but very important. Picture of friendship, perhaps we can grasp more easily. We understand, we all understand what friendship is, although we'll see the friendship we have with Jesus is a little different from our other friendships. But perhaps we could say that the Christian belonging with Jesus, he, we share in his life, that's the picture of the vine and the branches. And we share in his love. That is the friendship we enjoy with him. These are the two sections, two subsections of what we're going to be looking at in a minute. Maybe it's worth, though, just taking a minute to uh, position ourselves in John's Gospel because it has been a few weeks uh, since we've looked at it together. So John's Gospel divides quite naturally into two sections. The first 12 chapters are about Jesus going around, interacting with people, teaching, discussing, performing signs, miracles uh, to demonstrate that he is God. And it seeks to answer the question, who is Jesus? From chapter 13 uh, to the end of John's Gospel, it, it changes a bit and it is very much concerned with the events around Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. What happened before and what happened after. And chapters 13 to 16, which we're in just now, are sometimes called the upper room ministry of Jesus. It's Jesus the night before he died, spending real quality time with his disciples, teaching them the things that he believes they need to know as he is about to leave them. Within that, there's a bit of a break at the end of chapter 14. So as we pick up in chapter 15, it's after the end of a bit of a, a break point. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you'll see that right at the end of chapter 14, Jesus says, come now, let us leave. 
So actually, what we're reading in chapter 15 may not have happened in the upper room. It may have been if Jesus and disciples were walking. It may even be when they were standing in the temple precinct where there was a huge golden vine that that would have been very visible. We don't know, but I think there is a change of thought. So I think the end of chapter 14 is a break point in that the focus is slightly different. In chapters 13 and 14, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to follow immediately. He's giving them comfort that they can hold on to as they witness his crucifixion, and then later on, after he rises from the dead, as he goes to be with his father. Broadly speaking, the focus of chapters 13 and 14 takes us up to Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit uh, comes on the believers. I think chapters 15 and 16 are looking further ahead. Jesus is saying to his disciples, here is how you should live as the church. As my representatives on earth when I'm no longer there, here's what you should do and here's what you can expect. What you can expect from the world around you, largely rejection, we'll see that next week, and what you can expect from God through the power of the Spirit. And so what we're looking at this morning is really the introductory part of that, as Jesus tells us two things that are pivotal in our relationship with him, that are part of us belonging to Jesus. You've probably already worked out that I quite like alliteration, um, so we're going to use a bit of alliteration again. We're going to talk about um, lasting fruit and about loving friendship. And these will be the the two sections we'll be thinking about. Broadly speaking, lasting fruit goes up to about verse 8, and from verse 9 onwards, it is loving friendship. So lasting fruit. The analogy of the vine and the vineyard would have been very familiar to Jesus' disciples. In the Old Testament, many times it talks about God as the vineyard keeper and the nation of Israel as the vineyard. And what characterizes that in many, many of these occasions is that the vineyard is failing, that it is not meeting the expectations of the vineyard owner. Last example of that in Isaiah chapter 5, where God says, what more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? He then says he'll allow it to be destroyed, and he says he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. And there are other passages similar to that in the Old Testament. Israel was designed to be God's vineyard, but it was a vineyard that didn't produce fruit because people's lives hadn't really been changed, because the leaders weren't leading them in a way that was in accordance with God's will. And so in chapter one of, verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine. The old vineyard is not the thing that we should be looking at now. We should be looking at one vine, and that vine is Jesus. Now, many of you know this is the last of seven I am sayings of the Lord Jesus in John's Gospel, where he reveals truths about himself, but also truths about us and our relationship with him. And that's very much going to be the case uh, in this one. Now, I'm no gardener. 
Um, if you ever come to our house and admire anything in the garden, all the credit goes to Bridget. And that includes two trees that we've got, two fruit trees. We've got a plum tree and an apple tree. And we've only had them a relatively short time, a few years, but they are very fruitful. We had a good crop from them last year. But I look at them just now in the winter. There are no leaves. There is no fruit. And I think we need to think about cutting these back a bit in, in the new year. They've got nice long branches, but actually growing nice long branches is not what fruit trees are all about. What you want from fruit trees is good fruit. And how do you get good fruit? Well, the fruit comes uh, from the life of the tree, which comes up through the trunk of the tree and the sap that goes out. And you want that sap to be producing fruit rather than producing extended branches. So you need, if you've got a tree, occasionally to prune it. And that's the picture that the Lord Jesus is presenting to us here much more skilled than than I would ever do in terms of pruning. But God, he says, is pruning his vine. And there are two things that he does, says Jesus. He takes the, the dead wood, the wood that has no fruit growing in it, and he cuts that off and he throws that away. Not entirely clear what Jesus is talking about there, but it may well be people who appear to be Christians, who come to church, who present as being followers of Jesus, but actually they're not really Christians. They're not displaying the fruit that a real Christian should, and maybe their trust is not really in Jesus. That might be what the Lord is describing. You might be thinking particularly of Judas, who had been one of the disciples for three years and now had betrayed him. But let's focus more on the second action that the gardener takes. Because the the branches that are bearing good fruit, he prunes. He cuts a bit off them in the expectation that they will produce even better fruit. Now, at first sight, that might seem a, a rather strange thing to do. Why do you cut back the thing that is fruitful? You're going to reduce the fruit, are you not, in the short term? Well, maybe you are. But what you will get in the long term is both more fruit and better fruit. Fruit, says Jesus, that will last. And vineyard keepers, whether in Israel or whether in southern Europe, they are very skilled at knowing when and how to prune the branches to produce the best crops. What does that mean for us? If we take ourselves, how does God prune us? How does he help us to be more fruitful? Well, they can come in a number of ways, and they tend to be painful for us. Sometimes, perhaps when we have done something we know is wrong, or when we're reading God's word and we recognize that we're not meeting the standards, as Christians, we may feel a bit of a sense of shame. We may recognize all that Jesus has done for us, all that we owe him, how we should live, and we say, I'm just not meeting that standard. I'm not good enough. And then perhaps uh, the Lord Jesus comes to us, and through the Spirit, he reminds us that, yes, we're not good enough, but Jesus has taken the penalty for our sins, and there is forgiveness for us, even as we continually fail him. So by helping us to understand our own inadequacy, by bringing that sense of failure on us, 
God can help us to grow as Christians and to become more like Jesus as we realize again just how much we owe him. Then there's a second example, which sometimes, we sometimes call the trials we experience in life. We suffer illness or someone close to us suffers illness. We suffer bereavement. Perhaps we get made redundant from our job or there's something else that is causing us great stress in our lives. And we might be tempted to say to God, well, why is this? And it's not wrong to ask that question. Why is this happening? Well, one of the reasons why these things happen is to draw us closer to the Lord Jesus, to help us to realize that there are things which we can't control in our own strength, but to know we have a God who is in control of everything. And our Christian trials, the difficulties we face, they build our Christian character. They help us to become more dependent on the Lord Jesus. They increase the bond, if you like, between the branches and the vine. And they help us to be better disciples of the Lord Jesus. That pruning process that God uses for us, it is painful But it is so important that we never suffer, we never develop character, and we need to develop fruit by being pruned by our Heavenly Father. But if that's the role of the Father, what about the Lord Jesus? The Lord Jesus, who is the vine. Well, the key word that comes again and again in these verses is remain. We are to remain in him, Jesus says. If we remain in him, we will have his life we will bear fruit, we will become like him. So what does it mean then if we want to think about remaining in Jesus? Well, we have to recognize first again that without Christ, we have no spiritual life. Without him, we would be dead in our sins. And we need to repent and trust him But we need to do more than that. We need to cultivate our relationship with him. He wants us to have a living, active, vital relationship where he is part of our everyday lives. He is a key part of our everyday lives and we seek to follow him and live for him. We maintain the relationship when we read and meditate on the Bible. When we come to him in prayer, When we prioritize serving Jesus and living for him above everything else. When, as we're looking later on, when we obey him, when we love others. That is what remaining in Jesus means. It is he is at the center of our lives. And we recognize that any life we have, any spiritual life we have, is only because he is the vine and we are attached to him as the branches. His life is flowing through us and making us fruitful. And what then is the fruit, the good fruit that is going to last? I suspect for many of us, when we talk about fruit, our minds go automatically to the book of Galatians, where Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things which characterize the Lord Jesus 
and they're the things that should characterize us as Christians. Now, as we read through that list, I'm sure all of us see there are things there that perhaps I'm not doing too badly on, but there are things there where I really need to improve, where I need to be bearing more fruit. And a fruitful Christian is not primarily about what we do. It's about who we are. It's about our character. It's about how we live our daily lives. But I think when we think about fruit, we need to go a little bit beyond that because there is fruit that is displayed through other people as well. So, for example, if we have the privilege of being able to lead someone to trust in the Lord Jesus, that is fruit for the the work that we have done, not that we would take credit for it as from the Spirit, but it is fruit of what we've done that we can rejoice in. What we've been thinking about the last couple of weeks We are a church together, many of us, old and young. And we have the opportunity to interact with one another, to encourage each other in our faith and in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. And when we can see that character of Christ developing in others, to an extent that is our fruit as well, we are being fruitful by setting a good example and by encouraging others in their faith. And you can probably think of other examples of fruit as well. But as we remain in Jesus, as we bear fruit in our lives, what wonderful things he promises to us. So in verse 10, the the Lord Jesus says, if you keep my command, you will remain in my love. Just say, I kept my father's commands and remain in his love. So we will enjoy Christ's presence with us and the knowledge that he loves us more than we could ever understand and that he has the best in store for us. The Lord Jesus also says that if we remain in him, this is verse 7, if we remain in him, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What a marvelous promise that we can come to our Heavenly Father in Jesus' name as those remaining in Jesus, and we can present the requests of our heart, knowing that God listens and that God will answer. Now, it has to be said with that, that this is for people who remain in Jesus. And if we're remaining in Jesus, our desire should be not for our own comfort or our own wealth or whatever. It should be for his glory. But that doesn't take away from the greatness of the promise that those who remain in Jesus can come to God the Father and can see answers to prayer. And then finally, and there's lots more we could talk about, Jesus talks about joy. Verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Joy, whatever our circumstances, Joy through the difficult times as well as easy times. If we remain in Jesus, if we are enjoying his life and his presence, we can take comfort and strength from that and we can rejoice in his goodness whatever circumstances we face. What a great privilege it is to be part of the vine that is the Lord Jesus and to produce lasting fruit. Let's move on, though, and look at the second part of the passage, which I've called loving friendship. 
I'm going to focus particularly on verses 12 to 14, but we will cover the other verses as we go along. One of the first sermons I ever preached was on these three verses. And the reason was that I was really intrigued by the structure of them. And it is tremendous to look in the way I've tried to illustrate in the slide to look at how the verses fit together. You could start with any of them and read round and round in a circle going back from verse 14 to verse 12 every time. And it follows on, it flows very naturally. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. My command is this, love each other. And we go round and round and just marvel at what God, what the Lord Jesus is saying to us and what it means for us. I'm going to start at the end today and work our way round to the middle. So verse 14 says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now that should immediately say to us, our friendship that the Lord, with the Lord Jesus that he offers to us is a different kind of friendship. You probably wouldn't be very impressed if I came up to you and said, you can be my friend, but only if you do everything I tell you to. That's not the way a normal friendship works. Friendship is normally a relationship between those who treat each other broadly as equals. Our friendship with Jesus is different. We are in no way Jesus equals. The best analogy perhaps would be a king or in those days an emperor. The king would have a court and there would be courtiers who, who he might regard as his friends. They would be his confidants, people who might give him advice, people who he would tell what he was thinking. But they would still be his subjects. They would still be under him and uh, need to obey his commands. And that's the kind of friendship that Jesus is talking about here. And the contrast he makes as in the friendship is not between friends and enemies. It's between friends and servants. He says, I'm no longer going to call you servants. I'm going to call you my friends. And he says the distinction there is a servant just has to do what they're told and not ask any questions. Master says, do this, and they go and do it. A friend is privileged to understand why they are being told it and to know a little bit more about the background. So Jesus says, up till now, you've treated yourself as my servants. You've been my disciples, and you have taken it as your role to serve me. I now want to call you my friends because I've told you everything you need to know and so the relationship is much more one of friendship than of serving. Servants obey instructions. Friends understand the, the will of the, the one who is talking with them. What a privilege it is for us to understand the mind of Jesus and to understand God. Now, in the context, Jesus obviously was talking to his disciples who spent a long time with him that we haven't physically. But yet in the Bible, we can see God's mind and God's will and understand, particularly through Jesus, something about our God and who he is. 
And so Jesus says, you're my friends, you understand. Then he repeats the promises he's made earlier, the promise of fruitfulness, the promise of answered prayer. But it's all dependent on obeying Jesus' commands. You are my friends, he says, if you do what I command. So then we need to go back to verse 12. What does Jesus command? Jesus says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. If we were to go a bit further back to verse 9, we could see the love that Jesus has for us and he asks us to have for each other is also the love that God the Father had for Jesus. This is an enormous standard that he's setting for us. The love in the most intimate relationship in the universe between God the Father and God the Son. The love sacrificial and wholly undeserved that the Lord Jesus has shown to us. That is the kind of love that we should be showing to each other. It might seem impossible. In a sense, maybe it is impossible, but as we develop the character of Jesus, as we come to understand more of the love that Jesus had for us, that should be reflected in the love that we have for one another. We are to love each other as Jesus has loved us. And how has Jesus loved us? Well, we're on to verse 13, aren't we? Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus is saying, I'm laying down my life for my friends. You are too as well. Now, Jesus actually went beyond that. He laid down his life for us when we were his enemies, when there was nothing in us that would deserve him to do that great sacrifice for us, where only the grace of God was sufficient uh, to save us from our sins. Jesus says, I have done that. I have died, laid down my life for you. You should lay down your life for one another. Now, that might sound, on the face of it, quite unlikely. How likely is it that any of us will have to die for our Christian brothers and sisters, literally, physically die? Well, it is possible. We couldn't rule it out. But probably it's not going to happen for most of us. But it's just indicative of the kind of love that we should have. That we should sacrificially be willing to give of ourselves for one another that our relationships, our interests in others shouldn't be superficial and just for the good times. That when people are going through difficult times, when they're struggling, when it is really hard for them, perhaps it's hard for us uh, to be involved in their lives, we should be willing to sacrificially show love for them. John's gospel, the the uprooted ministry of the Lord Jesus, has many parallels in John's first epistle, the book we call 1 John. You can see again and again, as you read through 1 John, this is based on something that Jesus said in the upper room. And 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And we might say, yes, I agree with that. If it comes to the bit, I would be willing to lay down my life for someone else. But what does John say next? 
What is the example he gives that might give us an idea of what it is to lay down our lives for brothers and sisters? He says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And that brings us right down to earth, doesn't it? This isn't all about being heroic and and being able to do big things of of sacrifice for others. This isn't our day-to-day life, being able to help people with their needs, might be physical, might be material needs, might, might be spiritual, might be emotional, being able in some way as the Lord enables us to show the love of Christ to our Christian brothers and sisters. The test of our love is not in the the big gestures. It's in the everyday way in which we interact and in which we show our love. So John concludes that little section in his epistle, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That is where we have Christ-honoring evidence of life, of fruitfulness, of our friendship with the Lord Jesus. Let me end with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a great preacher from the 19th century, sometimes called the Prince of Preachers. His servants are marvellous. Read his sermons, you'll be so blessed by them. Take some getting into sometimes languages and it's old-fashioned, but there is so much in them. Writing on this passage, Spurgeon said this, The moon cannot shine as brightly as the sun does, and you cannot love as much as Christ does but you can be like the moon and shine with borrowed light. You can reflect on others the light of the love which Christ has shed upon your soul. If you're a Christian this morning, as we've described it, muse on these, think on these words. We're not going to be able to be exactly like Christ. We're not going to have the love that he had, which is beyond our understanding but we can reflect that love in the way that we deal with others, whether it's those in the church or those outside whom we're seeking to help and to help to understand the truth of the gospel. We can be like moons, shining with the reflected light of the Lord Jesus. So I hope that's been encouraging this morning to us. I hope, as I said at the start, it's been challenging. So here are the challenges I'll leave you with. First of these is, can we ask ourselves, am I part of the vine? Am I really a Christian? Do I believe in Jesus as the only way to God? Do I try to live like him? Do I belong with him in that living relationship of the vine? If the answer to that is yes, then the next question is, is the life of Christ evident to others, life of Christ in me, evident to others? Am I bearing spiritual fruit? Am I showing the character of the Lord Jesus in my daily life and becoming more and more like him? And in particular, is the love of Christ in me? Do I reflect that great love that Jesus had for me? Do I obey him? as I show that love to others. And if we can, if we do, then we will be fruitful. We will enjoy the the presence of the Lord Jesus with us. We will bathe in his love. We will have joy, whatever our circumstances. And we will have the ear of the Father who will answer 
our prayers. Let that be true of all of us. Let's pray together now. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this tremendous teaching of the Lord Jesus, that we are living branches if we are believers in him, that our life flows to us from him, producing fruit, making us more like him. We pray that you help all of us to ensure that we have that life, that our faith is in Jesus, and help us to be fruitful, particularly as we show to one another the love of Christ, that in our everyday lives we may build one another up, that we may see fruit in each member of the church. We thank you for our time together this morning. We commit ourselves to you now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.